You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's scripture reading is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the reading of the Word of God. Thanks be to God. God, our Father, we are thankful for your Word. Help us now, we pray, to understand it. We want to trust you in all that you say and that you do. So help us now to trust you even in the word that you have given us this evening. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I love singing with you guys. Love it. Uh, Well, many of us have been part of churches, whether in this city or in other parts of the country, perhaps, where you might have felt it had become necessary for you to leave a local church. Maybe because some bit of doctrine that was being preached, perhaps something was being, in your estimation, overemphasized or underemphasized from the pulpit. This happened to my parents in 1990 or so. We were at the same Baptist church where they had become Christians in the early 70s. I'm not sure if you know of the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, but in the 70s, 80s, early 90s or so, most SBC seminaries and therefore many, many pastors throughout the country had begun teaching that the scriptures aren't necessarily all truthful or authoritative for our lives, for our doctrine, that Jesus may or may not have been God, that Jesus may or may not have risen from the dead. Ultimately, though, many taught, none of that's all that important Because the lessons that we learn from his life and teaching, the metaphor of resurrection, this is all that really matters for our life. It it gives us meaning. One of my relatives, a a pastor in Fort Worth, was one of the denomination's leaders in this kind of theology. When I told one of my seminary professors about who my relative was, this was a history of the Baptist class, uh, he said, well, well, Mr. Sherman, You know, he said, I couldn't have disagreed more with your cousin Cecil. Cecil, that's a good name. Uh, But he said, I always respected him. He always was clear about the issues. He always realized that this was not just a, let's all just agree to disagree about these things. I don't think my cousin, I don't think my pastor at First Baptist Denton, Texas, necessarily had evil motives, necessarily had bad intentions. I think he and they and many of other, the other pastors of these decades were just teaching what they thought was good, what they thought was right. But doctrine matters. Either Jesus is God or he isn't, right? Either he is alive or he isn't. Either the scriptures shape us, inform us, 
all the way or they don't. Where we land on these questions matters. And Paul saw the same things happening at the church at Ephesus. Not necessarily the same questions, the same teaching that were flying around the Southern Baptist Convention for a few decades, but serious, serious issues that needed confronting, needed correcting. If you weren't here last week, hopefully you listened to the podcast of last week. We had introed this uh, letter of First Timothy. Uh, it was a letter from Paul to Timothy. Paul had left his young protege in the city where they had spent up to two, maybe three years together uh, ministering. And upon coming back through this large and influential city, things were an absolute mess. Paul is now writing back to Timothy. He's left Timothy here to put things in order, and he is encouraging him with what to do. So we'll think through these five verses tonight with just two questions. What should Timothy do, and why should he do it? You may have seen in the liturgy or in the weekly email earlier in this week that we have printed here uh, through verse 11. This is one of the downfalls of having to get a file to the printer by Tuesday night. Uh, I just got started working on this later in the week, and there's just too much to say in this first paragraph. It's too jam-packed. So we'll get to verses 8 through 11 in a later week. And heads up, next week, Clint is going to kick off for us what's going to be about a month-long conversation within our gospel communities about money, about stewardship, about generosity. So he's going to walk us through a one-off sermon next week on these things uh, next week. And then we'll get back to 1 Timothy the following week. Okay, so what should Timothy do? Verses 3 and 4 again. Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Similar to Paul's letter to the Galatians, where false teaching had threatened to undo belief in the finished work of Christ, Paul doesn't start this letter with a typical like paragraph or two of thanksgiving. There isn't like a, to Timothy, I am so thankful for you. I thank God every day in my prayers for you uh, because of your partnership of the gospel. Like he doesn't have time for that. This is a business letter and it's time to get to work. Right off the bat, he gives the purpose for this entire letter. Stay there, Timmy. Charge certain persons, you know who they are, not to teach any different doctrine. Unlike Galatia or Philippi or Corinth, where Paul was likely confronting false teachers who had come in from the outside, it's likely that Paul is charging Timothy to confront false teaching that had come from within. Paul saw this coming the last time they were in Ephesus, when in Acts 20, if you're still keeping up with the reading, the read scripture plan that we're getting through, I'm a couple days behind, but we're going to get to Acts 20 this week. Uh, he Right before he rolls out of town, he tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says, pay careful attention. He's about to roll out of town. He's got all the elders, all the pastors of this church gathered. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be watchful. Be on guard for false teaching that is going to come from without and from within. Hymenaeus, Alexander, which we'll see at the end of this chapter, they're likely elders of the church. 
And this is one reason why he's going to spend so much time in chapter 3 on the character and the doctrine of the elders, of the deacons. So don't just go up and clean up their mess and just hope it goes away. Tell them to stop, Paul tells Timothy. This is why he'll famously say in chapter 4, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Like, take this letter with you if you have to. And tell these teachers that you represent me and I represent Jesus. So this word for different doctrine, it means new or novel. Things, pre- things different than the saving gospel of the finished work of Christ that Paul preached. Like similar to Galatians 1 where Paul told the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one. Paul's saying a different gospel than Jesus' gospel is no gospel at all. And that's why these elders must stop. But what is it that they're teaching that is actually so bad? We're not exactly sure. Evidently, it has something to do with them being really into myths and genealogies, which is weird, right? Paul brings it back up in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And then in chapter 6, he calls it the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So there's some kind of teaching, some irreverent thinking and teaching on myths and genealogies going on within the church that Paul can't stand. Any attempt on our part to figure out exactly what is going on here would be guesswork on our part. But it seems that these teachers are spending the majority of their time or perhaps just an unhealthy, inordinate amount of their time trying to fill in the blanks of the Old Testament. Like what we have with the Bible and the Old Testament is a good starting point, perhaps. But really, it's just the starting point, the key to unlocking the real spiritual stuff that we can then graduate to. And what this is causing is just endless speculative storytelling, theories, uh, and just waste of time words, maybe figuring out like some code in the numbers of the ages in the genealogies or something in Genesis, or embellishing the Old Testament stories with like imaginative rewrites based on some of these teachers' theories about God, his purposes, or the law. We've got Jewish counterparts of the day doing similar things. We've got writings of theirs, retellings of the stories of creation, or at the Mount Sinai, or even the death of King Saul. We have still today Jewish rabbis who are teaching and writing these things, imaginative retellings of the stories of the Old Testament. And so perhaps these Christian pastors are trying to be the Christian counterpart of these Jewish rabbis. Rather than stewarding, rather than using the Bible in the way that God has given it to us, rather than trusting it as God's final and full word to us by faith, verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Leaders who want to be well-regarded as like super theologically wise and ultra-spiritual, perhaps not even intending to lead the people away from the simple truths of the gospel, but because of their vain discussions about silly myths, they've basically just thrown a big pot of water onto the smoldering embers of the gospel, just snuffed it out. 
They've thrown water on the knowledge of God and his character, the knowledge of ourselves and our desperate need of reconciliation with God, of ongoing transformation, the knowledge of the actual scriptures and their usefulness for today. These leaders are devoting their time, their attention, their energy towards speculation, and it's just been a time-wasting sleeping pill of death. My two oldest boys have really gotten into the Percy Jackson books recently. These were after I was a kid, so I didn't even know what these were. Uh, It's a a modern-day retelling of the Perseus story. And we just, this last week, watched the first movie. It was good. Percy and his friends, they get lured into a casino, into a casino where uh, these hostesses, they give them sweet lotus flowers, which they eat. And Percy finally realizes that something is wrong when he meets a guy who thinks it's 1971. It's modern day. And this guy still thinks it's 1971. He realizes that eating the flowers causes time to stand still, causes you not to age as you keep eating these flowers. So he realizes that something has gone horribly wrong. He gathers his friends and they leave the casino. What they thought they had just been in for maybe half an hour or an hour, it turns out they had been in there for six days because they were just eating these sweet lotus flowers. And so these leaders here are giving these deliciously interesting stories, these wonderful speculative myths to their people, distracting them to a sleepy death apart from Christ. And don't we as a culture need to be corrected, perhaps even more than the Ephesian culture, about just time-wasting mindlessness? I don't think Paul is saying that we should devote 100% of our time only to prayer, only to sharing the gospel, only to reading the Bible, only to reading like systematic theology after systematic theology or something. Nor do I think Paul is necessarily saying that we shouldn't be on Facebook, we shouldn't be on Instagram or Twitter or something, that we should never watch a YouTube video or a football game or a Percy Jackson movie or read a novel, even like a historical fiction based on characters in the Bible. I had a New Testament professor assign me to read a novel called Pontius Pilate, which was an imaginative, speculative retelling of the story of those characters in the Bible. I don't think Paul is necessarily prohibiting that here. But when any of those things distract us from prayer, distract us from reading the Bible, distract us from reading other good books about the Bible, distract us about from being with God's people, whether on Sundays or throughout the week, and certainly when any of those time-wasting things begin to replace those necessary things, now Paul might have a problem. These are one delicious lotus flower at a time. I'm not much of a Facebook or Instagram guy, but I love Twitter. I like it a lot. Many, perhaps, most of the folks that I follow are posting good and helpful, like blogs on theology, just little snippets to remind me of the goodness of the gospel. And I also follow some political writers and some Texas Longhorns and Texas Rangers bloggers, and all that's fine. But convicted about all this on Wednesday, I went through the the great Twitter purge of 2018, and I went and unfollowed like half the people that I follow. Uh, Before this week, it might have taken me like, I don't know, two hours a day, 10 minutes at a time, to read everything that came through my Twitter feed. I was like, yes, two hours of Twitter a day. I don't know. I should have timed it before I unfollowed so many of these folks. Like my book reading has really suffered in the last year because of just 
following one person here and one person here. And now my follow list is like 200 people or something like that. Well, no more. I unfollowed a great multitude, a great host this week, even good and helpful folks, but who are just sucking my time dry. Another 2018 application for us. Listen, look, look at my eyes. I have very important pastoral counsel for you all. Never read the comments. Never. Never read the comments. On a news story, on Facebook, don't read the comments, everyone. Like, you know this, right? After you read, like, a New York Times article or something, and you click load the comments, and then it takes, like, three comments for you to just get angry. People are just throwing division and anger grenades onto the comment thread, and then you get angry and divided, right? Don't read the comments. If Facebook causes you to get angry, you're doing Facebook wrong. Unfollow the people who are not helping you. Uh, and if you can't unfollow these people, perhaps consider whether social media is for you. I'm not saying that we should just always follow and listen to people that we agree with, but if all of this, if all of our internet habits is just causing us to just go down the rabbit hole of time waste, and perhaps we need to reconsider. Another 2018 application is that we've got a dangerous combo of these uh, teachers here in First Timothy, don't we? They are ignorant and yet arrogant. They have no idea what they're talking about, and yet they want to be thought of as teachers of the law so that they can make confident assertions. I read one commentator this week say that their entire teaching ministry was like a preacher who has written in the margin of his notes, weak point, so sound confident and pound the pulpit. Like if you're not really sure that this is actually true and right, just sound confident. And don't we all fall victim to that? Like if someone sounds like they know what they're confidently talking about, we tend to believe them. We tend to take them at their word. Oh, they, wow, they must really be authoritative on this issue. Perhaps nevermore has confident while ignorant been more celebrated than today. It really is astounding that most internet commenters I see these days evidently have like advanced degrees in like theology and in science and in climate and in history and in jurisprudence and in constitutional law all at the same time. Like everyone that I know on Facebook must have like nine different PhDs. It's, it's quite incredible. In reality, all of us have just read maybe six or seven blogs on any given topic, and now we have a really, really hot take. Everyone's got a hot take. Everyone has a blog. Anyone can have a podcast on any subject. It's, it's incredible. It would do us well. It would do us well to take inventory on who is shaping us, teaching us. Every time you follow someone on Twitter, you are inviting them to shape the way that you see the world. Every time you turn on cable news, you are inviting them to help you form the way you see the world. Every time you subscribe to a podcast, read a book, read a blog, you are welcoming them to fashion the way that you think about culture, about politics, about the Bible. And again, all that's not to say that you should only listen to people that you already agree with, but be aware of how your worldview might be changing for the good, and perhaps even for not good. Choose wisely. And the lotus flowers aren't just 
the autoplay of one more episode on Netflix or one more video on YouTube or the infinite scroll of Facebook or BuzzFeed or whatever might capture your attention for two or three hours at a time. We also have the distraction of actual false teaching. Perhaps for some, the kind of teaching that was prevalent in the SBC a few decades ago that we'll get into next time with the many implications of that kind of the view of the Bible that perhaps says not all of this is true, but likely for more of us what seems to be maybe the most prevalent view of Christianity, of God through Christ in America. That God and the cross of Christ is just another form of self-improvement. An important way, of course, right? We Christians might say, yes, of course, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is an important way of improving myself in the world. Perhaps getting baptized, perhaps getting to a, going to a church service, that's important. But perhaps not all that different than the diet that I'm on right now, or the yoga that I do, or the exercise. Reading the Bible, hearing a sermon is certainly helpful but perhaps not all that different than the Jordan Peterson lecture I just listened to or the ta Coates book that I read. These are all helpful things for me. And sure, Jesus is important, but just one more way of helping me have meaning, perhaps making me a little less stressed this week. This is the air that we breathe as Americans, the daily lotus flower, just dulling our senses to the glory of God to the God who created the entire cosmos and our small, small lives. Dulling our senses to the Christ to whom every knee shall bow and demands every bit of our worship, not to be sprinkled on as an add-on. And then, of course, as Clint prayed for in Guatemala, the American church's chief export to the rest of the world is the prosperity gospel. This is what we have to be most proud of, church. It's just, it's, it's maddening, maddening that God's greatest goal for you is to make you happy by giving you material stuff. That he doesn't ever intend for us to experience weakness. He doesn't ever intend for us to experience suffering. And any weakness or suffering that we do experience must come because of a lack of faith on our part. These are new and different gospels, which are actually no gospels at all. So while we may not be tempted toward, toward myths, toward genealogies, most of us, I think, have the same urge as these first century teachers to like unlock the Da Vinci Code, unlock the hidden meaning of the, the real good stuff in the Bible. The simple, the simple usefulness of the Bible becomes boring, becomes not good enough. We're always tempted. Hey, Oscar. Yeah, all right, all right. Yeah. I'm so glad you're here, brother. Yeah. Brought from Uber itself. Yes. Uh, and the Holy Spirit. Aren't we all tempted to art? The simple usefulness of the Bible becomes just boring, it becomes not good enough. We're always tempted to move on from the elementary reading of the scriptures from when I was a kid. Like, surely now I have graduated to some deeper, unlocked mystery of the Bible. Or as I see so many people saying online, from when I was an evangelical. 
There's a whole hashtag these days of exvangelical. Back when I was in an evangelical church and I just believed the Bible. Now I'm much more mature than that. I'm much more wise. Perhaps, I think as all of us have experienced, uh, for those of you who are through your 20s, to unlock a better worldview than our parents or our grandparents so that we can think of ourselves as wise. I was so proud of myself when I was like a junior in college and I drove home one day with my like progressive candidate for governor bumper sticker on the back of my car to like drive into my home church and park my car and be like, ha, see how much wiser I am than all of you idiots, right? Just like there's a sense of just arrogance that comes that wants to just say, I'm wiser than you, old people. Paul is saying, don't leave the plain old gospel. The good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for sinners, it is imperative that we never graduate from the gospel. And that is why we can confidently, over and over, unashamedly sing, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. May it be so that that is our song. We sang this evening, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let it be so that that is what we sing and resonate with forever, that we don't leave that. The Ephesian church needed Timothy on Paul's authority, on Jesus' authority, to come in and stop this nonsense. To say, stop eating the lotus flowers. Wake up to how you are what you are reading, wake up to what you are hearing, listening to, distracting yourself by that is actually causing you to love God and love others less. Which gets us to our second question. You may have noticed that we skipped over verse 5. What should Timothy do? He should stop these certain persons from teaching different and silly doctrine. But why should he do it now? Well, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a, sincere, and a sincere faith. So why should he do it? We might have expected, I think many of us, with our view of Paul perhaps, we might have expected Paul's answer to be, why should you stop all this? To keep the doctrine pure, for sound doctrine's sake. Shut these guys down so that the doctrine is good. No. The answer is love. Why should Timothy stop all of this sound doctrine? For love. Just as in Romans 13 when Paul said that love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, Paul is drawing from Jesus. Where we read, And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. And he asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Then Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Love is the whole of the Christian life. That we love God and that we love our neighbor. That we have passion for God and we have compassion for people. And not just people in our lives who already love us. Not just people in our lives who it's easy to love and that we naturally like. But Jesus is even saying our own enemies. Those whom it feels natural to hate. People who might actually hate us. 
And so Paul is sending in Timothy on this special mission to shut down false teachers, not because these false teachers might disagree with Paul, and like Paul can't stand it, like he's some small-minded man, and he hears that these people are like bad-mouthing him, and they're disagreeing with him publicly, and he can't stomach that. So he sends in Timothy to shut him down because he's of his pride or something. No. Not because he wants to make sure that they've got pristine doctrine for doctrine's sake. Not so, he's, he's like afraid that the Ephesians are going to have to like sit down and take some theology exam someday, and he wants to make sure that they ace it for love. John Piper says that love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. And according to Paul in verse 6, how do we have an overflow of joy in God? Here's how. Here's how you are actually able to love. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It'd be easy to just blow right through these, and I think I was maybe planning on doing that, uh, which is why I planned on two paragraphs here in this first chapter, but we can't. We gotta slow down. Let's spend a couple of minutes on each of these three things because they are so important to how we are to love. First of all, a pure heart. Does this mean, is Paul saying that the only way that I can love is to never sin? No. Paul is likely, again, drawing from Jesus. Drawing from Jesus' well-known Sermon on the Mount teaching of blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Perhaps the unifying theme throughout that Sermon on the Mount is that of uniformity, of external actions and internal motives. That we do something on the outside because of our internal motive for the love of God not just to look good to outsiders. That we increasingly have undivided hearts, pure hearts that are not mixed with different motives, self-seeking motives. It's actually impossible to love God and love others with mixed, impure hearts. If the only reason that we're showing kindness to others is so that others will notice, if the only reason that we're doing something kind or loving is to later post about our experience on social media, hashtag blessed, right? Of course, only the power of the Holy Spirit can actually bring purity, can actually bring a, a heart that is alive to God, and then over time can begin to transform it more and more. But by doing so, the Holy Spirit is bringing purity of heart. A single-willed, focused, God-oriented heart that does all things out of love for God. And then out of joy for God, then spills over into the need of others. The Spirit increases our ability to love, to love God, and to love others by more one willing our heart, not mixed motives of our heart. So this is how we're able to love, by a pure heart. And our ability to love, secondly, comes from a good conscience. I think the conscience is so underemphasized and perhaps even misunderstood by most folks today, certainly in evangelical churches. 
Too often we think of the conscience as merely like an angel on this side and a devil on this side and we just have to listen more to the angel or perhaps like the Jiminy Cricket in our pocket that we should listen to. And while perhaps the Jiminy Cricket image from Pinocchio is more helpful than the creatures, the dueling creatures on your shoulders, I don't think it's still adequate. What Pinocchio hears from Jiminy Cricket in that movie is always good advice, right? He just chooses to ignore it. And that's just not the way that the conscience works in real life. While Paul says in Romans 2, even people who are not Christians can even hear and listen to their conscience. The conscience can actually speak to even non-Christians in things that they ought not do. Nevertheless, this is not always the case. I think all of us perhaps can think of a dozen, a couple of hundred examples from our own lives where we did something that was not honoring to the Lord, that was not loving to others, where we didn't have our conscience screaming at us not to do it. Right? I had a co-worker in college who was a professing Christian, but she was regularly sleeping with her boyfriend, and she said, it's, it's not a big deal because my conscience is clear on this issue. I was like, what, a, what about the Bible? What if the Bible is screaming against your silent conscience? It appeared to me then and now that she had what Paul will later in 1 Timothy 4 call a seared conscience. That is a burned and incapable of feeling conscience. The conscience is something that can be ignored and can consequently wilt and die away. Or on the other hand, it can be like a muscle. It can be exercised. It can be cultivated. It can grow. And that's why it's extremely dangerous for all people, but even we as Christians, to assume that our consciences are infallible, are perfect. That any time we're in a tricky spot, Jiminy Cricket will absolutely start screaming to me in my ear, and if I don't hear him, then what I must be doing is okay. But just like the Spirit can grow in us a purity of heart, the Spirit can grow and cultivate our consciences as well. Things that we might not even feel a twinge of hesitation about when we first become a Christian. Decades later, where we have a sensitive conscience, one that we are listening to that has become wise. We've got this like bodybuilder Jiminy Cricket now who is really strong and his voice is louder and that we're actually more receptive to hearing. But even seared consciences, even seared consciences by the power of the Holy Spirit can become feeling consciences once again, can grow in strength. And of course, as Christians, as church members, our consciences are never on an island, never by themselves. One of the clearest ways that God can help us hear what is right and wrong is through his people. Last month, we had a fairly big family decision to think through. So I, we, we got together with Eric and Shannon Lair. We we're like, hey, help us think through this. I sent a group text to Clint and to Ryan and to Kyle, and I was like, guys, pastor me. Help me think through this issue. I don't trust myself on my own quite enough. My cricket conscience is getting stronger, but it's still a cricket. I need you guys to help me to cultivate this conscience. If you'd like to think more about this, maybe take a three or four night break from Facebook this week and check this book out from the, the mobile library cart that we have here. It's called The Conscience. What is it? How to train it? And loving those who differ. It's a great book. Maybe take a little fast from Facebook and read this this week. It will do you well.
But again, the reason that a good and strong conscience is needed is that we might be able to more passionately love God and more compassionately love others. A good conscience has nothing to hide. Not because there's never any sin, but because we have had our sins cleansed by the blood of Christ. Or as Paul says in Philippians 1, he says to the church at Philippi, he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's linking these two things together in Philippians 1. Living purely, living blamelessly, isn't something that Paul is saying actually changes categorically. Like from impure to then pure. From blameworthy to blameless. These are things that can actually grow. That you become more pure. That you become more blameless. And that we, his people, might have lives that are blamelessly, in increasing ways, pointing others to the sweetness and to the power of Christ. So pure hearts, good consciences, and lastly, a sincere faith. This word sincere is literally an undisguised or unhypocritical faith. Much like a pure heart, someone can say that they are trusting in Jesus, but their lives might not actually point to that reality. Like when the moment of temptation, when the moment of obedience or disobedience comes, are we trusting in God? Are we trusting in his promises? And are we actually following him? Do we say we have faith? Or do we actually exhibit faith when the moment calls for it? I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to behave more righteously when others are around aren't we all? To behave more righteously when others can see me behaving more righteously. Perhaps showing that I care more about what others think I should do rather than what God wants me to do. This is an insincere, perhaps hypocritical faith. Of course, like the others, this is something that God can grow in us. A weak faith can still be faith. Faith. Just like a weak conscience can still be a trustworthy conscience. It just needs to grow. So this can be a prayer for all of us. Lord, I want to believe. Help me believe. I fear I have an insincere faith. It's not a genuine, totally committed to you faith. Help me. Now, I'm obeying God in private in my secret thoughts more so than I was 10 years ago, more so than when we even planted this church two years ago. Praise the Lord for that. But still, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think this is probably, if we were honest with ourselves, true for all of us. There's still something in here that is not a completely pure heart, that is not a completely good and blameless conscience, that is not a utterly and wholly sincere faith in God. But this is what he wants in us. Why? For love. That we might be able to love God and to love others. That we might have greater passion for God and greater compassion for people. Paul's chief concern was 
a overflow of joy in the Ephesians' heart that they might be able to readily meet the needs of others. Love, 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 love. This is why when I read bloggers or listen to podcasters or hear at a coffee shop, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not really into the God of the Old Testament. I'm not really into Paul. He's just too repressive. I just want to love people like Jesus did. Well, I agree. I agree that I want to love people like Jesus did. That conclusion is my conclusion. I'm not very good at loving people. I'm too defensive. I'm too selfish. I want my comfort too much. Help me, Lord, to love as Jesus loves. But this is a false dichotomy to pit Paul and Jesus against one another. Jesus' teaching was primarily an announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand. It had arrived on earth. There's a tiny bit of teaching from Jesus about what living life in that kingdom will look like, but not much. This is why he sends Paul, why he sends the other apostles on his behalf to teach us how to live in the kingdom, how that actually and practically gets played out in our lives. And so if we make Jesus' teaching merely about feeding the hungry or caring for the outcast while ignoring repentance, while ignoring what obedience and following him looks like practically, this is not a teaching of love because it leaves people in their sins. It also kind of gets under my skin when folks say that they want to love, love like Jesus, unlike the repressive Paul. As if it weren't Paul who wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I give away, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. His entire ministry is about love. That's what Paul's daily MO is. Love. He's not about repression. He's about love. Doctrine matters. Jesus was concerned about it a lot. He didn't just go around caring for the outcast. He had a lot of bad doctrine to confront and correct. Paul is concerned about it too. We'll talk about sound doctrine a whole lot in the coming months. Without it, we won't be able to love people well or love God at all. But here's the thing. To paraphrase one pastor, a faithful church is not one that never changes its statement of faith. A faithful church is not one who merely preaches verse by verse through the Bible. A faithful church is true to the gospel at two levels simultaneously. One, in its teaching, yes, but two, in its love. Some people walk into a new church wondering, what doctrine do they teach here? Perhaps some of you did this. Perhaps some of us, when we move to a church, we want to know what doctrine is being taught here. However, more people walk into a new church wondering, how will I be treated here? Is this a church where I can work through my real problems? Or am I going to have to fake it? I'm hopeful that through 1 Timothy that we can be a more faithful church. Not just in our doctrine. Yes, and please God, help us and correct us where we need correction. But help us to be a more faithful church in our love. A church of greater love. A church of greater love for one another. A church of greater love for our city. A church 
of greater love for God himself. Doctrine matters and will help us and shape us, will point us and will overflow us in passion for God and in compassion for people. Where our doctrine is bad, our love will be bad. And where our doctrine is good, our love will overflow. May it be so. Let's ask him that it would be. Our Father, we are thankful for this short letter. We're thankful for this short paragraph. Correct us where we need correction, Father. Help us to put down phones or to turn off TVs where they need to be put down or turned off. Help us to say no to the things that are replacing a greater love for you through prayer, through reading the Bible. Help us to even close windows on good blogs if they are preventing us from going to your word. Help us as your people to be corrected where we need to be corrected, not so that our doctrine is pristine, but that we might have greater passion for you, that we might have greater and overflowing compassion for people where needs need to be met. Help us, we pray, for our own joy in you, for others seeing your goodness, and for your glory made known in this earth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.